Good morning, everyone. Listen, it was an unbelievable week hanging out with your kids and your grandkids, all the kids from our community. I don't know if you were in the building. It was so loud every day. Like they taught these kids chant, chants, and there was never a moment of silence. Literally everywhere they were going, they were chanting in unison about something. And I found myself one day in the atrium standing next to one of our police officers, and I just looked at him and I said, you know, we are training professional protesters right now, and I want to apologize <laughs> for whatever these kids organize to do in the future that you have to watch over because they're going to be really, really good at it. Honestly, it was such a great, great week. Thank you for trusting us with your kids and your grandkids um, and your neighbors, your kids' friends, and allowing us to tell them about Jesus. It was an incredible week. Heidi, let me say to you again, thank you for your leadership um, in our church. I find it funny that like we, like we became attached through a kids' event, right, through an Easter egg hunt um, before one of our services that you as a mother brought your kids to, and now you are like a spiritual mother of all of these kids. And I don't know if you're planning to sit in this whole service again, but if you just want to lay down and take a nap, like no one will judge you if you just need a day without 700 people um, hanging out and like looking to you for direction. Um, but Heidi, our church needs you. Uh, our community needs people with hearts like yours, and our world needs people with hearts like yours, people who exist to help um, kids find Jesus and to help families lead their kids spiritually. To all of our volunteers who helped this week, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart as one of our pastors. By the way, if you were like brand new, first time ever in our church, you came because one of your little people was on the stage. My name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to say on behalf of our church, thank you for serving for those of you who served this week, very specifically the dads and the grandpas who took a week off work to be here. When the men of the church believe it is their primary role to grow up the next generation spiritually, you will see revival come to churches. And for the dads and the grandpas, and there wasn't a lot, but there were a few of you who took off a week of work to just pour into kids. Thank you. Like from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Because as dads, we often coach everything but spiritual things. And the reality is at three to five years old, we start teaching our kids how to throw a ball. We start teaching them how to kick a ball. We, shoot them, we teach them how to shoot a hoop. But between 18 and 20, they quit asking us for help with those things because they don't do them anymore for the most part. But those dads who will begin to train their kids spiritually, at between 18 and 20, you'll actually start getting the questions that matter most. And the rest of your life, your kids will look to you as their spiritual leader. So I want to invite everyone in here today who maybe is not engaged at Journey on Sunday mornings to begin serving at least once a month with our kids, loving our kids, getting to know them. But very specifically, our dads, if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 14. Um, grab the bulletin that we gave you when you came in because this card is in it that says Journey Kids Volunteers. I'm going to say this and then I'll jump into our Bible study time. But if you are a man in our church, and this goes for anyone, but let me talk to dads and grandpas. If you have a kid in our ministry... And you do not have a Sunday morning role yet, which means you get here five minutes before you grab a cup of coffee, five minutes after you're in your car heading out. Let me challenge you once a month to come an hour early and to go into a room with your son or daughter and teach them what it looks like for you to love Jesus and serve Jesus right in front of them. Uh, one of our elders this morning in our prayer time, as they prayed about this Sunday, thank God for their mom and dad who made sure when they were a child to bring them to church. 
I think probably one of the scariest things for me as a pastor about the digital age that we live in now where it's so easy to miss church and catch the sermon on Monday driving to work is that our kids don't get anything. And while mom and dad are able to gorge content because we got a smartphone and we're able to be kind of hit and miss and still catch everything that's said, our kids are missing large gaps of their faith journey. So moms and dads, let me encourage you, be here for church on Sunday morning. Serve in church on Sunday morning. If you're not serving, fill out this card. We'll, we'll help you. We'll make it easy on you. We'll give you a place you can be successful. But when a church believes its most important role is to serve kids, you have a church that's going to last for more than a generation and hopefully have a great footprint of impact in their city. Amen? Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 14. I was hoping more of you would say amen to that, but it's okay. I know like a lot of tired people um, after the week, but when a church serves children, they leave a great f- footprint on their community. Amen? All right, now we're ready. Matthew chapter 14. We're in week two of a six-week emphasis that we're calling Kingdom Citizens. We are studying profiles of people in the Bible that lived in the kingdom of God so that by looking at their life, we can figure out who God wants us to become and what God wants us to do. Last week, we looked at kingdom profile number one, John the Baptist. And we learned this about John the Baptist. We learned that kingdom citizens are people who live with courage and they live with conviction Because they have a spiritual calling to use their life to help people see Jesus clearly so that they can receive Jesus or reject Jesus. And John the Baptist carried that out and had people both receive and reject Jesus, but they could not debate who Jesus was once they met John. We closed last week with the prayer of the great missionary Jim Elliott, who said, God, do not let my life be just another milepost on the road of life that people walk by without knowing anything about you. He said, God, make my life a fork in the road. That when people come into contact with me, they either have to choose to follow you or reject you, but they can no longer choose to go on through life without you. Make my life a point where people clearly see Jesus so they can decide whether or not he's for them or whether or not they're not going to live for him. That was the profile number one that we looked at last week. Today we're going to be in kingdom profile number two, and we're just going to be looking at the disciples. A group of 12 young men, probably between the ages of potentially as young as 13, definitely as young as 15, probably not any older than 21, and most likely kids between the ages of 15 and 20 were probably these 12 men that Jesus was engaged with as he was living life and building the next generation of his disciples. As we look at them today, we're going to learn what it looks like to live with compassionate generosity. So grab your notes, get your Bible ready. Before we ever read scripture at our church, we always pray and ask God to get our hearts ready. So if you would just bow your heads with me quickly. Take a deep breath and just settle your spirit into this this moment. And ask God to speak to your heart today. And just tell him that you'll be listening for his Holy Spirit. God, that's our prayer. That as we sit in this room today and watch online... My prayer is not that anyone will hear anything from me. My prayer is that they'll hear something from you, from heaven. So speak to the eyes of their soul and the ears of their heart. Lord, train their hands for what they need to do as a kingdom citizen. And help us to be a congregation full of people who live with compassionate generosity that unlocks the potential of faith in our lives and, Lord, unlocks your impact in the world. That's our prayer. And we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. So Matthew chapter 14 is where we are hanging out today. We're going to start in verse 13. For those of you who weren't here last week, John the Baptist, because of his conviction to live with courage, because of his call to point people to King Jesus, 
upset a man named King Herod, who said there cannot be kings, and he killed him. He cut off his head. In verse 13, Jesus hears about this, and here is the response. When Jesus heard what had happened to John, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So those of you who have learned anything about Jesus, if you just know the cliff notes of Jesus, it's probably in Matthew 14. Matthew 14 is one of those staple chapters in the Bible that almost every one of the gospel narratives talks about. We learn about John the Baptist. He's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We learn about the feeding of the 5,000. They talk about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus walks on the water in Matthew chapter 14. We read about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus calms the storm. That's recorded in all four gospels. Like Matthew 14 is like the stories that we know about Jesus. They're the big stories that we know. The goal of this series and this three weeks specifically is to look through those stories. We know he fed 5,000 people. We know about John the Baptist. We know that he walked on water. We know he calmed the storm. We know the events. What can we learn spiritually about those events by kind of like trying to look through the events at the people? And then even more than that, trying to like pull the heart spiritually out of the people and dissect what must have they seen and what must have they learned and how must their faith have been impacted so that we can become kingdom citizens like they were kingdom citizens that really is the goal of this three weeks in matthew chapter 14 and as we look at this text and we say what must the disciples have learned that we should learn we start number one with what i call levels of compassion because when we jump into matthew chapter 14 this is first and foremost a story about compassionate people really at different levels I would say it this way. Both Jesus and the disciples had a great awareness, a tremendous awareness that the crowd around them had needs. Like we, we open this text and Jesus and the disciples were really aware that the crowd who was around them had, had some needs. And I want to say this for those of you who say, man, I would like to live like that. We're going to find that the reason that Jesus saw the needs of the people was because Jesus had and saw his own needs. And the reason the disciples saw the needs of the people were because the disciples had and saw their own needs. And often, we will not begin to see the spiritual needs of people in the world and begin to serve the spiritual needs of people in the world until we ourselves have admitted that we have tremendous spiritual need. And until we have come to Jesus for our spiritual needs and until we've become started living in community with people who help us with our spiritual needs. So, see, most of the time, we do not become a people who are aware of needs of others until we become a people who are aware of the needs of ourselves. And once we see how needy we are spiritually, boy, it just seems like everyone else in the world needs what we have found in Jesus. Amen? So we look at the needs, and we find Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 hurting 
And he looks up and he sees that the crowd is also hurting. We look at the disciples in Matthew chapter 14 and they're hungry. And they look up and they see that the crowd is also hungry. So we enter a world of need and a world of compassion. Jesus is hurting. And he looks around and he sees other people who are hurting. The disciples are hungry. And they look around and they see other people who are hungry. Once we've seen our own spiritual needs, it's easy to identify those in other people. And hopefully we can begin to help those needs in other people. So what do we learn? Look at verses 13 through 15. We'll just kind of pause these two verses, 13 and 14, for a minute. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, you might underline those words, heard what had happened. Matthew is very specifically referring to his second cousin, John the Baptist, being assassinated by Herod. When he heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. You might underline that and note, Jesus wanted to be alone. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns, and when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. You might underline that. And healed their sick. Now, let's just set, let's set the tone of the scene for the man. Let's leave the scripture on the screen, and let's just let's talk about the man, Jesus. He hears that his second cousin, John the Baptist, is martyred for telling the world that Jesus is the real king, not Herod. There's got to be several levels of pain here. One, the pain of family. Some of you in the last few years, maybe many of you in the last few years, have lost a family member or a friend. That's a heavy moment. Maybe for Jesus, he knows what his mission is, but this is the first time he's seeing it play out. Maybe Jesus is looking at a little bit of a foreshadowing and think, holy cow, so this is what it looks like to die on the mission God sent me to die on. The same kind of corrupt authorities in Israel that would kill his second cousin, he knew in just a short matter of time would be sentencing him to death as well. So maybe for the first time, this was really heavy in his soul. Something happened that made Jesus just want to get away. He was hurting and he wanted to be alone. And we find a whole crowd of people who were hurting, watch this, because they were alone who showed up to find Jesus. Jesus wanted to be alone because he was hurting. And this whole crowd of people showed up and they were hurting because they were alone spiritually looking for God to do something in their life. And even though Jesus needed a moment alone, the crowd showed up and it said he had compassion on them. On your notes, this is a fascinating word in the Greek language and how it's been translated from Greek to Latin and eventually to English. It's the word splanch natsomai. And it's literally a word that means to feel in one's bowels or to have a visceral reaction. You say, what do you, what do you, what do you mean compassion? The word compassion means to feel deeply in your gut or to have a visceral reaction. It's a word that means literally when you, when you go look at visceral today in the dictionary and you see how this Greek word became a Latin word that eventually became a German word that eventually became an English word. The word visceral, like one of the definitions of visceral, if you look it up in the dictionary, is what it's not. Visceral is not intellectual. Say, so what's that mean? It means it's not something you think about. It's just something you feel. If you go to the doctor and you've put on a little weight recently, they'll tell you visceral fat is really, really dangerous fat. Why? Because it wraps itself around your inner gut organs and it creates some really bad medical diagnosis for you. So this word visceral is something that you feel automatically, 
but you feel it deep in your gut. It is the word, if you've ever been watching a sporting event and somebody has the Alex Smith injury and their leg snaps in front of you, that the broadcaster will say, ooh, you might want to turn away. And it's like, why do I need to turn away? My legs are good. Like, I could watch that over and over on slow motion because my legs are fine. Is that how you felt when you watched something like that? No, it's like, ooh, that, that hits you right here. It's not your body, but there's something in your soul that deeply identifies with the hurt. It's what you feel when you drive by a car accident that you can tell is really, really bad. It hits you right in your gut. It's what you feel at the top of a roller coaster. Tick, 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 tick. And then you begin to go over and you can see over before you've started over. And you start over, but your stomach stays about five stories behind you. Like, this is the word, compassion. You feel it deeply in your gut. And you don't even have to think about it. It's just there. Jesus saw the crowd. Jesus wanted to be alone because he was hurting. And the crowd showed up and he helped them. Why? Because it was just what he did. He did it without thinking about it because that's who he was, compassion. We actually see a couple different levels of compassion in this text. The first is the disciples' compassion. Believe it or not, they had some compassion. Verse 15 says, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. We're out in the middle of nowhere. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now listen, if the primary role of the disciples were to be Jesus' executive assistants and to keep him on task and on time, and if he'd have said, hey, before it gets dark, remind me to send them to get food, they would have been living on mission. But they were not executive assistants in charge of time and task. They were kingdom citizens in charge of mission. And what they were saying here is, Jesus, we see a need but we feel zero responsibility to meet that need. I would call this, and Scripture would call this, worthless compassion. All heart, no hands. Like my heart clearly sees people are hungry. They need to eat. My hands feel absolutely no responsibility in it whatsoever. Worthless compassion. All heart, no hands. Now this, by the way, is not terrible compassion just worthless compassion you and i work with some of us live in families with some of us who have neighbors who are not even yet all heart no hands they're no heart no hands there are some people in our world who neither realize that anyone is hurting or tries to help them so the fact that that the disciples saw hey like everybody's gonna starve if we don't send them to dinner that's a good step But ultimately, if it wasn't followed up with hands, it was a worthless step. A generation later, Jesus' little brother James would be writing a letter to his church that he was pastoring. And he would say in James chapter 2, Suppose we met a man or a woman who didn't have any clothes and didn't have any food. If we said to them, Hey, I wish you well. I see that you need clothes and food. I wish you well. Go get some food. Go get warm but you don't do anything to help them? What good is that? And the answer to that rhetorical question is, that's no good at all. To see a need, but not meet that need, is kind of worthless compassion. That's no good at all. So the disciples showed up, and they were all heart, no hands. Hey, these people are going to starve. You should probably send them away to figure that out. Somebody say, and... Okay, let me say what I meant to say. Everyone say and. And. All right, that's better. Um, The disciples 
saw the need, and did nothing about it. Jesus saw that people were sick and hurting. Everybody say, and? And he healed them. See, it's what comes after what you see that tells you whether or not you have true compassion. And I call what Jesus did gospel compassion. I see it. I feel it. And I do something about the need that everyone sees. And thankfully for Jesus, he did not start with our need for food. He started with our spiritual need. Gospel compassion. I see that you're hurting. I feel that you're hurting. I'm going to do something about that need. Hebrews chapter 4 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Because it's about the rest that God promises and offers. As a matter of fact, 11 times in Hebrews chapter 4, we read the word rest. It's all about God has something better for you. In this world where you're trying to do it all yourself, where you can't ever get ahead, where you always feel like you're behind, like God wants some spiritual rest for you. That is the message of Hebrews chapter 4. God promises rest. God has a rest. God invites you to rest. God's going to give you rest. Rest, 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 rest. Eleven times in Hebrews chapter 4, we read the word rest. And then we read... That's why this word to you pierces so deeply in your heart. This word of rest is sharper than any double-edged sword. Like this invitation to rest spiritually, like that gets right to the heart of every person who lives. Because that rest comes from a mediator who can connect you to God. And the author of Hebrews would say, since we have so much invitation to rest in verse 15, he said, we can rest for we don't have a high priest For those of you like pretty new to spiritual things, maybe brand new to the Bible, the high priest is somebody spiritually who who mediates between you and God. The high priest was the go-between between people and God. He was the one who took God's wrath of people and made sure it was placed somebody else and who took people's desire to be close to God and connected them to God. That's what the high priest did. He took God's wrath and made sure it wasn't put on people, and he took people's love, and he tried to direct it towards God. That's what the high priest did. So the author of Hebrews says, For since we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We read that gospel compassion is not only seeing and feeling, but doing something about the need. So if you've ever studied a little bit of human biology, part of our nervous system is called the sympathetic nervous system. You say, what is the sympathetic part of our nervous system? It's the part that activates before we tell it to. The sympathetic nervous system is what allows your eye to blink without you having to say, Oh, there's a gnat. I think the gnat's going to come in my eye. Right before the gnat flies in my eye, blink. No, the sympathetic nervous system just does it because it knows you don't have time to do that. The sympathetic nervous system is what makes us sweat. If we waited till we felt so hot that our body was overheating and said, you know what, mind? We should sweat because it would cool us down. We would all overheat and eventually probably die of heat exhaustion. So the sympathetic nervous system says, body's heating up. We're going to sweat without our brain having to tell it. Like, we're just going to go ahead and do that for the body. The sympathetic nervous system actually does something in humans that was made more for animals. And it's kind of funny because when you get goosebumps, 
It was actually made for the animal kingdom. The sympathetic nervous system says when I'm cold, I'm going to give you goosebumps because in the animal kingdom, goosebumps allow the fur of an animal to basically lock out cold so that it doesn't die. Maybe if you have really, really, really hairy arms, like that works for you. For most of us, we just get goosebumps and it does nothing. The sympathetic nervous system says if we wait for the brain to tell the body to do this, the body's not going to survive. And Jesus said, if I wait for people to realize that they're broken and lost to ask for help, it will be too late. So I will go to the cross. And because I know who they are and how they're hurting, I will provide all of the spiritual gateway to heaven they need before they know they need it. So when they need it, it is there. That is the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus says, before you know what you need, I know what you need, and I show you grace, which means I treat you as you need to be treated, not like you deserve to be treated, and I show you mercy. Mercy is the kindness of God. I show you grace, and I show you mercy because you don't yet know that you need God, but once you realize you need him, I'm going to make sure there's a pathway already there for you. That is gospel compassion. Jesus sees that you need God. It's the only thing in life that will fulfill you. Jesus feels that when you place your security and your happiness in anything but him, that you always end up brokenhearted. And instead of watching it and thinking, well, when they're ready, I guess I'll do something. 2,000 years ago, he went to the cross because he knows when your spiritual nervous system says help, that his hand will be able to reach down and say, I have already provided all the help you need if you will connect to me in grace and mercy. That's the gospel of Jesus. That before you knew you needed him, he knew you needed him. And he made sure that when you were ready, he was ready. And he was willing. And he extends grace and mercy so you can connect to Jesus. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is so much better than providing one meal for us. Jesus says, I can provide an eternal connection to God. If you will turn to me. Those are the levels of compassion that we learn about. But when we look at the level of Jesus' compassion... We see massive generosity, and that'll be kind of the second part of this lesson in what we learn about kingdom citizens. We learn some lessons in generosity. So we learn levels of compassion, and we want to have the compassion of the gospel, not compassion that is worthless. But then we learn lessons in generosity. So in verse 15, the disciples had half generosity or half compassion. Hey, the people are hungry. Tell them to go get something to eat. And Jesus says in verse 16... They don't need to go find something to eat. You give them something to eat. So they said in verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. If you have a pen, I want you to circle the words or underline the words we have only. Because it appears that the disciples weren't as stingy as they were broke. It wasn't that they weren't willing to help. They just like put all their money together and were like, I don't think this is going to do it. And I think this is really important to see because when it comes to generosity, I really do believe, and I'll say this again at the end of my message, I believe 99.9% .9 of Jesus' followers are not stingy as much as they are broke. Like, I think we look at the needs of the world and say, I absolutely see it, and I would like to help. I just am kind of out of pocket change right now. And Jesus says, help them. And they say, like, we can't. We can't because we don't have any money. 
I heard the comedian Chris Rock one time say, I'm so broke, I can't pay attention. Like, that was the disciples in this experiment. Like, they were so broke. Jesus is like, I'm trying to do something spiritually here right now. And they literally couldn't even see what was going on. When they put together everything they had, it wasn't enough. And we find out that eventually what they came up with was more than they had together. They may have stolen some kid's lunch and brought that to Jesus. Like, not only did they not have anything, they didn't have five loaves and two fish until they found some kid willing to share his stuff with them. Like, the disciples were broke. And Jesus said, actually, you're in a perfect position right now for a lesson in faith. Because Matthew, who was a tax collector, which means he was a finance guy. He kept a ledger. Matthew presents this as a finance problem. Bunch of people need food? Not very much food. Remember the word problems that we all hated in math? How much food would it take to feed these people? Probably too much is the answer there. Like X means too much food. We don't have enough food. Matthew says this is a finance problem. Jesus, who's the savior of the world, not a finance guy, says, no, this is a faith problem. I'm asking you if you believe that I can do something miraculous with what you have. So he says in verse 18, bring the people here to me. Bring the fish and loaves here to me. And he directs the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Underline verse 20, it's the key to the whole lesson of kingdom citizens. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. What's the generosity lesson? Let's just give that, let's just put that one like right out in the front, make sure we don't miss it. Our resources in the hands of Jesus for the work of Jesus We'll do the work of Jesus in the world. But more than that, it's going to unleash the generosity of Jesus in our life. Like when we take what we have, even though it's not very much, and we're like, Jesus, I want you to use this for your mission to make sure the whole world knows the gospel, that they can be connected to God through you. Our resources in the hands of Jesus will not only complete the work of Jesus, they'll do something very, very special in you. Because look at the spiritual math and how this works here. Look at, look at the spiritual math and ask ourselves this question. Like, who, who did the generosity help more? Like, before placing the resources in the hands of Jesus for the work of Jesus, the disciples, 12 of them, had five loaves of bread and two fish combined. After placing their resources in the hands of Jesus for the work of Jesus, they had a basket full of fish and loaves each. So did they have more after their generosity or before? I'll ask it again. This is like actually a dialogue, not a monologue. Um, so I'll like do the whole thing again. So before they put their resources in the hands of Jesus for the work of Jesus, combined 12 guys had five pieces of bread, two fish. After they gave Jesus their resources in the hands of Jesus for the work of Jesus, they had a whole basket full each, did they have more before or after they practiced generosity? After. After. So we have to ask this question when it comes to a life of faith. Who actually got more out of this act of generosity? The crowd or the disciples? The answer is the disciples. 
The crowd in Matthew 14, they got a meal. They got one meal, one stinking meal. And the next day when they came back and said, can we have another meal? And Jesus was like, no, that's not really what I was doing. I was just trying to show you my power so you'd follow me. They're like, we don't want to follow you. We just want to eat. Just like, no more food here. Kitchen's closed. Crowd got one meal. The disciples in Matthew 14 got a lifetime of faith. So the next day after the crowd was like, what's for lunch today? And Jesus is like, nothing. Me. You get me spiritually. It's all you ever need. They're like, you're crazy. We're leaving. And after they all left, Jesus asked the disciples, you leaving too? And I think partly because of this lesson in faith, Peter said, where else would we go? Who does what you do with broken people and not enough resources? How could we follow anyone but you? And we see that generosity is always for the one who gives. It's very rarely for the one who receives. The crowd got a meal. The disciples got a perspective that shaped their faith for life. And this is the perspective, by the way, of New Testament Scripture. That the one who's generous always receives more than the one who they give it to. Acts 20 says it this way. The Apostle Paul, preaching to the early church, says, And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Jesus' followers see hurting people, and they do something about it. All heart and hands. We do this because we remember the words of our Lord Jesus himself. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This is the message the Bible has towards generosity. Being generous does more for you than it does for the person who gets it. This is the message that God gave to the Old Testament uh, people of Israel when they were living for themselves, kind of holding on to all their wealth because they feared that God wouldn't take care of them. The prophet Malachi came in Malachi 3.10, and I'm not going to teach this because this really is not a finance message as much as it is a faith message, but I'll explain it. Malachi told the people of Israel, bring the whole tithe. The word tithe is a Hebrew word that means tenth, 10%. Bring the whole 10% into the storehouse, that's the temple, that there might be food in God's house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be enough room to store it. I'm not going to give a big detailed finance lesson. In the Old Testament, the people were required to give so much of their offerings as an offering back to God to say thank you. New Testament Christians are no longer required to give 10% in order to be pleasing to God, but many do because they know that is a heart of responsive worship. They don't give 10% so they'll go to heaven. They give 10% because they want to say thank you to God and feel like his hand and his uh, blessing are on their finances. So Malachi says, God's only asking for a tenth of what you have but he's promising much more than that you see your generosity will always give you spiritually more than it asks of you spiritually that's the lesson here and Christians are supposed to be people who are generous people in the world moved by their compassion I see a need moved to generosity I give towards that need for those of you who maybe have not started your generosity journey it always starts in the exact same way and i want to give you a picture of what generosity can look like not going to take a special offering today's not about money really is about faith but i want to show you how we view money works spiritually we at our church have always used this little graphic that we call a generosity ladder this is how people's generosity journey almost always begins there's the first time they give towards something it is a compassion moment I see some hurt, I want to help, I can help, so I'm going to give an offering. Sometimes this is to the Red Cross, 
Sometimes this is to a school function. Sometimes this is to the kid down the street. Sometimes this is to the local food pantry. We see that there's a need. A first-time giver kind of says, I have some money. I want to help. An occasional giver also has the mindset, I still have a little bit of money, and it actually makes me feel good to help. So I'm going to help some more. A percentage giver is somebody who gets real consistent in their giving. Watch this. First-time giver says, I have some money. I can help. Occasional giver says, I have some money, and it makes me feel good to help. So I'm going to help again. A percentage giver says this, I have some money because God has given it to me. So every time he gives to me, I'm going to give, I'm going to give some back. All of a sudden now there's a spiritual exchange. God gave me this, so I'm going to give him some. Tithing, when we get to this point of giving 10%, it often sounds like this. God gave me this money, but only 90% is my money. 10% is his money. So I'm going to give God his money to prove that I'm grateful and I trust him, and I'm going to live with my 90%, a difference maker giver says this, 100% of my money is God's money. And the purpose of all of it, after I've taken care of my family, is to figure out who else I can help and what else I can do. See the levels? First time giver, I have some, I'm going to give. Occasional, I have some and it makes me feel good, I'm going to give again. Percentage, I have some, but because God's been good to me, I'll give him some. Tithing, I have some, but 10% is his. Difference maker, everything I have is his. So I'm going to use it the way God wants me to use it. As you see these levels, what do you feel? What do you feel? As you hear a pastor talk about giving, how do you feel? Some of you have had really bad experiences. Danielle, when my wife Danielle, when she heard I was giving this message, is like, Christian, you can't talk about money on Kids Camp Sunday. There's some people who like, all they think the church wants is their money. And I was like, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about faith. But how do you feel? As you hear this, how do you feel? Because if we can pay attention to our feelings, we can begin to learn how to grow in faith. Because right next to what I call our generosity ladder is what I call a trust ladder. And the level of your giving reveals what you trust in when you give. When you give for the first time, it's because you trust the need. They need some help. Hey, the uh, kids camp is collecting money because they're going to build a playground in La Cedras, Guatemala. You might say a church hopefully would really do that. No way those kids could pay for it themselves. Yeah, I trust that there's a need. Here's five bucks, go put it in the offering. First time I give, I trust the need. When I begin to give occasionally, it's because I trust the church or the organization. Like, I see what they're doing, and I'm like, I want to help them, because they're helping people, and that makes me feel good. So when you give occasionally, you usually trust the organization you're giving to. When you begin to give a percentage, you're beginning to trust God's faithfulness. You're saying this, I have what I have because God gave it to me, so it's okay to give some back, because I think he'll give me more. I think God's taking care of me financially. So when I begin to give a percentage or I begin to give regularly, I literally am beginning to see my finances as an exchange as something God's given me, something I can give back and I can trust him. When you get to the point of tithing, this 10% place, it's because you trust God's promises. That if you see everything God gives you as 10% to be given back to him so he can fill your life up spiritually, it's like, I don't know how this works, but I... I trust God's promises. 
And when you reach this difference maker level, it's because you trust God's generosity. You say like journey, I believe I cannot outgive God. Everything I have is God, so if he wants it, he can have it however, however he wants it. However, if we were to just put this trust ladder on the screen, I don't know if you've seen it, but this is a picture, not of a ladder, but of a cross. Because Jesus saw our spiritual need, and he realized that the world needed his church. And at a pain point of trying to figure out, do I want to do this or do I not want to do this? He chose God's faithfulness as he went to the cross. And he trusted God's promises enough to tell his disciples, this is going to be a really dark three days. But I promise you, meet me three days later. I'm going to rise from the grave. So he went to the cross trusting God's promises. And his sacrifice was God's generosity to us. As John 3.16 says, God loved the world so much that he gave generously. The life of his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, we're invited onto the trust ladder only because Jesus died on the trust cross. And he opened up this relationship where we and God can dwell together. And I've created for you this, this little piece. I've asked him to take this kind of graphic and put it in your bulletin for this purpose and this purpose only. Don't want your money today. Don't want your money any day if God's not telling you to give it. My hope is that everyone in our church will take this graphic and place it somewhere where they can see it every day this summer. And here's the only thing I want you to do. I want you to pay attention to your feelings. What do you feel when you read these levels? Because it reveals something about your faith. What do you feel when you're prompted to give for the first time? What are you feeling? What does that reveal to you about God who wants you to help when people are hurting? What does it feel like in your faith where you feel like, it felt good to give and you want to give again. There's something in you that feels good when you help other people. What do you feel when you start giving regularly? What do you feel when you hear people talk about giving 10%? What do you feel when you think about the thought that everything you have is God's? Because if you will pay attention to that feeling and you'll cross the bridge to the trust ladder, you're going to see that ultimately... Your spiritual story is a story about needing to trust God's faithfulness, God's promises, and God's generosity. And my hope for this message is not to get your money. It is to build your faith. And you can only build your faith if you will listen to your feelings and figure out where in your relationship with God there is a trust gap. Let me close by saying this really clearly. I don't believe that most followers of Jesus, I don't believe 99.9% of followers of Jesus are stingy. But I believe a lot of them are broke when it comes to giving extra. I believe our heart is to give whatever would be needed to do whatever God wanted to do. I believe that 99% of Christians would give everything they had extra if God would do what he promised in Scripture. But most of us are just not in a place where we can do that. However, if and when we pool our resources or we find a kid to borrow some fish and loaves from and we put it in the hands of God, it unlocks something in our faith which allows us to take one step closer to the God of heaven through a relationship with Jesus. And that's kind of the point of this kingdom profile. Let me put it together and give it to you and then we'll close. Kingdom profile of a kingdom citizen number two. Here it is. Kingdom citizens 
are people who have a compassion that moves them to generosity in a way that builds their faith. All of a sudden, they realize their generosity did more for them than the person they helped, and it unleashes the impact of God on the world. Kingdom profile number one, courage, conviction, calling, help people see Jesus. Kingdom profile number two, we are a people who when we see need, we feel it, we see it, and if we are moved to act upon it, not only do we help whatever we're doing, but something inside of us allows us to understand what Jesus has done for us and allows us to build a trust of God at a whole new level. It's what happened with our kids this week, kids camp. Did y'all hear the numbers? Our kids gave $5,000 in offering this week. And I understand that was your money. I also understand some of you didn't even know you helped give an offering until like later in the day when you're like, where's the cash? And if that's you, I'm sorry. And thank you for your generous donation to the uh, playground in Las Idris. Our kids this week, think about their mindset. Our kids this week came and gave and gave and gave and gave. And not one of them, surely because of their age, could have ever thought, I'll get something back for this. They just heard about a need and thought, we should help. And it was never about them. But decades from now, there'll be little kids playing on a playground that they helped build. 1,200 pounds of food. Next month in Kansas City, some family will have a dinner that they could not have had because your kid raided the pantry. Thank you. They didn't tell you first. I apologize, but thank you anyway. They are clueless that that kind of need exists. And they don't know, like some of us who've had hard times financially know what a blessing it is to have somebody give you a meal. They just knew there was a need and they could help. When we begin to have childlike faith in this area of generosity, God has given you compassion. The Holy Spirit's in us. We see and feel and we want it. We want to act. So I can't do everything. Do something. Do something. Begin your generosity journey because it will begin your faith journey. Amen? Pray with me as we consider what we learned today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this profile of kingdom citizens that we learned from the disciples. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room, but hearts are open. Let me talk to Christians first. Christians, what did God say to you today about your compassion and about your generosity? What's God saying to your heart? Don't run from it. Lean in. Pay attention to your feelings. See what they tell you about your faith. Take a step forward. Christians, what did you learn today about Jesus? Who before you even know you're supposed to blink, prepared protection for you spiritually. Who before you even thought, I need God's help, made a way for you to have God's help who before you even realized you had a deep need had decided to always treat you as you needed to be treated rather than you deserve to be treated what have you learned about gospel compassion that makes you love Jesus more how can you become more like him to somebody else 
If you're here today and you're not a Christian, heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. The greatest honor of our church is to tell people that Jesus, before you even knew you needed him, knew you'd need him. And he went to the cross so he could open the gateway of heaven so that you could connect to the God of the universe. His grace, his mercy, his love. I've allowed that to happen. All you have to do is receive the invitation. If you've never done that, you can do that today by faith, which means you really won't understand it all. You won't even be able to explain it all, but you'll feel that the spirit inside of you is longing to be connected to the God of heaven if you feel that. And today you want to receive Jesus as your Savior. And from your heart to heaven, pray something like this. You don't have to pray it out loud. You don't have to say these exact words, but your heart attitude should look something like this. You can just pray something like this. God, I need you. Just repeat it after me. God, I need you. So today by faith, which means I don't understand it all, don't even think I could explain it, but I'm willing to receive it. Today by faith, I receive what Jesus did for me in my past so that I could meet him in my present and follow him in my future. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin to cleanse me of my past, to heal me of my hurts, and to lead me into my future. Thank you for loving me, for being willing to forgive me, for saving me, and for leading me. Today I commit to be a follower of Jesus, and I ask that you'll help me to do that faithfully. If you just prayed that prayer with me in just a second, I'll let you know how you can tell us so that we can celebrate with you, give you some info, answer any questions that you might have. But God, as we wrap up today, we thank you for the gospel compassion of Jesus who saw our need, felt our need, and did something about our need. Teach us to have trust, the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, the generosity of God so that our generosity can be unlocked to serve the world, but more than that, to build our faith. That's our prayer from this Sunday. And God, we pray you'll answer it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen.